So I had a female government counterpart. Um, her name was Sadika, and she was the director of women's affairs for the province. Um, so she was a government official um, in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, she wasn't getting paid um, because she was a female. Um, she operated a women's center that had no power, no electricity, no heat, um, no water, and it was really falling uh, apart. Welcome to the Players Hall Podcast, a show dedicated to exploring the topics of ethics, leadership, and honor. I'm Maya Mandiam, and I'm here with my co-host, Jack Wachtel. Jack and I are both cadets at the United States Air Force Academy, and we're excited to be hosting a very special event that will be running in tandem with the National Character and Leadership Symposium. Over the next four episodes, we will be featuring some incredible guests who will be sharing their experiences and insights on leadership, character, and ethics. Our guests include Raja Chari, an astronaut and Air Force colonel who recently flew on the SpaceX Crew-3 mission and is selected for the Artemis mission, Dion Leonard, an ultra-marathon runner who adopted a stray dog while competing in a race in China, Jason Redman, a retired Navy SEAL and author who has overcome significant challenges in his life, and Major Joanna Hip, an Army officer and former female engagement team chief on the front lines in Afghanistan. Each of these guests embodies the values of ethics and honor that we hold so dear at the United States Air Force Academy, and we can't wait to hear their stories and insights. We hope that you'll join us for this special event and that it inspires you to think deeply about your own values and how you can make a positive impact on the world around you. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the show. Welcome to the Player Soul Podcast, the show where we explore ethics and honor in a world that is increasingly complex and interconnected. I'm Jack Wachtel, here with my co-host, Maya Mandia, and today we are continuing our NCLS series and honored to have our fourth guest on the show. She's a major in the U.S. Army, a combat veteran, a leader, and a scholar. Please welcome Major Joanna Hip. Thank Hi, you for being on the show. Appreciate, I appreciate uh, you inviting me to be here. Well, thank you for being on the show, man. Um, to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about your career and kind of what led to you being here today? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I grew up as a tomboy. Um, I have two parents, both Army veterans. Um, my mom was an Army nurse and my father was Special Forces Green Beret, both during the Vietnam War. So I knew from a young age, um, my nickname was G.I. Joe uh, growing up. Um, so I knew at some point the military was, was going to be uh, my, my path. Um, I actually, when I asked my dad uh, about joining the Army um, and told him I wanted to enlist, he said, uh, go Air Force, and I was really surprised. Uh, I thought it was because my grandfather uh, was in the Air Force. He was a navigator in a B-17 uh, during World War II. He was also a POW in a German camp. Um, so I thought, okay, my father wants me to go on with my grandfather's roots in the Air Force. Um, and then actually turned out my dad just liked to golf and he wanted to come visit me with the Air Force golf courses. Uh, no, but so I chose Army. Um, 
I actually have a different route. Uh, I was a civilian employee with the military before I actually enlisted. I worked in public affairs at Fort Benning, Georgia, um, in the Army Public Affairs section there. And then I decided I wanted to actually wear the uniform. Um, and so uh, I was in my mid-20s when, when I enlisted. Uh, and then I was a direct select for officer candidate school. Um, I was actually selected for intelligence instead of public affairs. Um, but I think that was the best suit for me because I really enjoyed my years in intelligence. Um, I became a human intelligence officer, uh, so I managed and ran sources, um, deployed to Iraq, which is where I got to practice that. Uh, I was uh, uh, in infantry combat units for about 10 years um, and then assigned to a woman in the Army program that the Army had uh, initiated in about 2010 to 12. Uh, and this is where they were assessing females in combat units. So I was one of uh, several female officers selected for this program, and I was the first female officer assigned to an infantry battalion um, out of Fort Knox, Kentucky. Um, that unit deployed to Afghanistan, um, and that's where I became a female engagement team chief working with special forces teams in the area. Um, my stories in the book, Beyond the Call, I did not write it. Uh, Eileen Rivers did. Um, but it's a really great story, not about me, but really about the, the women um, that I got to work with in Afghanistan um, and kind of their sacrifices in perspective. Uh, so that's when I really started to learn about um, not only just the intelligence aspect of working uh, with the Afghan locals, but also the ability to influence and change behavior and change uh, decision making. And so I decided to change my career and I became an information operations officer. Uh, I went to school for that um, and then got assigned with several special forces uh, task forces where I worked in information operations. Um, currently, I am assigned to Army Cyber Command at Fort Gordon, Georgia as an information operations planner. So working with um, cyber platforms and cyber capabilities to deliver certain uh, messages, whether it's for um, you know, neutral target audiences or adversaries to continue to try to change perceptions and behaviors. Um, so that kind of sums up my, my career in a nutshell. A very diverse career, but um, it, it's actually led to a, a great point in my life. Awesome. Uh, so I, I was really excited to talk about the uh, your time on the female engagement team because just that's what I found a lot on when we were doing our research. But um, before we get to that, I know you started out as an intel, uh, human intel, right? Correct. Um, what was the scope of that work like? So, um, so operationally, um, I was deployed to uh, Iraq. I was in Tenth Mountain at Fort Drum, New York, and my brigade was stationed at Fob Hammer, which is outside of Baghdad. And so I had several um, teams um, operating in various outposts and, and FOBs and um, COPs around Baghdad. And so I was um, the officer in charge of these uh, of these teams running sources. Um, I also was in charge of local nationals who would come to the FOB um, with information um, that could potentially be intelligence, whether it was threat-related, um, atmospherics in the community. So I was in charge of about 22 um, source operators and various teams 
Um, it was it was a phenomenal experience. Um, unfortunately, in the army, uh, very different than the Air Force, but in the army, your your profession will change. Um, so I knew staying a human intelligence officer was not going to be a twenty year career. Um, the army expects officers to be diverse and to be first and foremost, you know, supervisors and leaders. Uh, so having that ability during that time. Um, was very rare for, for human intelligence officers to actually be able to run sources and manage them. For a whole 10 years, right? No, no, that was just for, for a handful of, oh, a handful okay, of years, okay. yeah. And how long were you on the female engagement team? Uh, that was just a year. So female engagement team um, is pretty uh, operational only for deployment. So okay. they don't exist, you know, kind of in the garrison. Um, it's not a unit or anything that... Um, it's, it's like a, uh, an adjunct uh, team that is developed specifically, you know, during the time that we were deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan. The Army doesn't have any engagement teams currently, um, uh, just based on the, the nature of the current threat and how we're not deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan anymore. Um, I believe the Marines and, of course, Special Forces, because they still work in austere locations, uh, they have combat support teams, which is the equivalent of the Army's female engagement teams. So this seems like a career field that's like very not black and white. There's a lot of like gray space. Can you talk about some of the challenges that came with that? The career field for the female engagement teams? Um, the human intel, sorry. Oh, um, not a lot of challenges. Um, so when I was there in Iraq, it was towards the end of, you know, the, the uh, military in Iraq. It was leading up to retrograde operations. So I think one of the challenges was uh, that consistent handover with sources um, in a deployed environment where uh, these sources had been providing uh, valuable intel to the military for years, and yet every, you know, six to nine months, they would have to work with a new, um, a new source manager uh, for the Army side. And so we constantly lost a lot of sources because you, the whole point of running sources is to develop trust with that person. Well, how do you develop trust if you're constantly being ripped out and having to hand over a source to somebody else? Um, so that was that was difficult in itself. And then it was also kind of ensuring and validating the information that you were receiving was credible and actually valuable intel. Um, I also worked, I think one of the t most challenging times, uh, and I'll provide an example, is that um, my, my warrant officer and myself were in charge of leading um, screenings of the local nationals who were working as translators uh, within the units. And so there were about five battalions in my brigade who were deployed, and for about three months I was traveling around uh, Baghdad to interview and screen these local nationals because we knew that there was a threat. We knew that there was inf insider information based on a green on blue attack that had occurred. So at one uh, outpost, very remote, um, there was a translator who was working for an infantry battalion commander. And, and this commander just loved his, his linguist, trusted him with everything. Um, it turned out when we were screening um, this linguist, uh, so they had their own, you know, kind of government-issued cell phone, and we were able to screen that cell phone. And turned out that there was some nefarious activity 
um, and that he was actually providing information um, to his brother who was working um, local with an al-Qaeda group that was directly involved with attacks on, on FOBs and killing of U.S. soldiers. So our recommendation was to terminate um, this translator immediately because of the threats. Well, that commander did not want to hear it, did not want to have it. He, he said, I was wrong. You know, I was a young lieutenant at the time. Um, and he, he got very belligerent with me. But I knew I was right. I knew that we were putting soldiers in harm's way if we did not terminate um, this translator. So I brought it all the way up to the chain of command. Um, and there was an investigation done. And everything I had found and recommended actually was validated. Um, and so more intelligence assets, you know, became involved. Um, but that was a very difficult time because I had to question myself. Well, maybe I was wrong. You know, this guy, this, you know, colonel uh, trusted his translator that much and he was telling me I was wrong. But I knew deep down putting soldiers at risk wasn't worth, you know, questioning it. So, um, so yeah, so I think in long story short, uh, regardless of what type of profession you lead, you know, whether you're a human intelligence officer, you're going to have to make a recommendation to a senior um, that is difficult to make and that they may not want to listen. But if it ever turns into a decision that you feel very strongly for, um, especially if airmen and soldiers are put in harm's way, you always advocate and push for it. Um, as long as you know that you've done your, your research and your analysis and your assessment and your recommendation is solid. Maya and I had a conversation with... Um... The, the data analysis in the math department? Who oh, Colonel Treat. Colonel Treat. And he was um, <laughs> talking about how he would have to give these recommendations to his, like, leaders and his sort of chain of command that, you know, maybe they didn't want to hear, but, like... The data was, proved The data it. proved it. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he had to be... Make sure he was super confident in his analysis of the data. And it, as he said, that helped a little bit. It helped a lot being able to be competent. Mm -hmm. Um so I think that's a pretty valuable lesson that kind of crosses a bunch of different career fields. Absolutely. Being competent and then being able to show that competency to your leadership, even though they might be stuck in some sort of, you know, some sort of way. Mm -hmm. Right, right. That's also what Dr. B. Wright told us. He said, like, the number one rule for leadership isn't being a good leader, it's being good at your job. Because if you're not good at your job, you can't lead in it. <laughs> that's true. <clears throat> that pertains to credibility. How did you verify that the information you were getting was credible? So, unfortunately, I can't reveal because that is a classified um, mechanism. Um, and I think that was part of the, the issue with trying to uh, convince this commander that, you know, he, this translator is putting... Because I couldn't tell him how we could do that. Because um, once that is released, you know... And it doesn't have to do necessarily with classification, you know, requirements and whether you have a secret clearance or not. Um, but it has to do with also putting soldiers at risk, right? Sometimes things have platforms, capabilities, processes have to be protected even against, you know, even amongst ourselves so that it doesn't become obsolete, right? Because if I had told that commander how we did this and how I know um, this translator is providing information, um, then that could get out. And all of a sudden, translators are changing their phones, changing their phone numbers, breaking their phones. And so it, it's that fine line between 
protecting um, sources and methods, capabilities, but then also making sure you're taking that information, that data, that intel, um, and that's what the important part is. Not the how, but the what. So looking uh, later in your career, at, when you're in InfoOps, um, how do you see technology and information shaping the future of warfighting? Oh my goodness, information is how we fight now. Information is everything. Um, we're not boots on the ground anymore, you know, trying to compete with our adversaries. We're not in China right now trying to fight against them. It's all through the information domain. Um, uh, operations in the information environment is a, is a joint term uh, based on joint doctrine, and that is defining how the future of warfare. Um, I encourage all listeners to become aware of new doctrine. Um, and I understand, you know, doctrine is taught here at the academy, but the future of warfare is based on information. And the Air Force just released uh, new doctrine on information warfare. Um, and so what does that mean? That means of how everything we put out in the environment, um, whether it's through social media, through special technical means, is based on um, providing information to um, our adversaries and our partners, but also potentially to influence them. So, so information operations, uh, I think, is going to be really key uh, for the next 10 years as we're kind of competing in that gray zone right now. Um, obviously, what's happening in, in Ukraine and Russia is a prime example. Yes, there are casualties um, there is that kinetic fight that is occurring, but there's also that non-kinetic fight that is occurring through social media and who is winning in the information environment. Do you think um, our generation is being prepared for that? Well, you guys are the social media gurus, you know, so um, I mean, as long as... So it's a double-edged sword, right? Those that are gifted and aware of all the different platforms with social media, you know, and, and, the, and can operate on a keyboard. But it's also that awareness that whatever you put out in, in the environment will stay and will resonate. And so it's, to, it's that fine line between ensuring that, yes, you can navigate through this information um, dimension uh, through social media, but at the same time, um, knowing that that message has credibility and knowing that that message has um, been thoroughly assessed, is culturally attuned, right? Not just with language. Um, and so it's, it's about the platform and the content of the message and the delivery. And so this generation of military coming up through the ranks, cadets like yourself, are really going to be able to ones that are, are, are most um, adept and trained at competing in, in this uh, type of information warfare. So now to get to talking about the female engagement team, because yeah. I'm super interested in that. So how did you come um, to like take on this this job again? So it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, so I was in the Women in the Army program assigned to this infantry battalion and we were deploying and I was the senior intelligence officer for the battalion um, staff. And uh, where we were going, our mission was to work with special forces teams um, in uh, village stability operations. So it wouldn't be just our army conventional team on the ground running missions it was our conventional army team supporting special forces teams already already there in afghanistan so um 
So I was going to apply for the combat support team to work with the special forces thinking I will get that training, right? They, the special forces had specific six month long training to assess um, a female doing this type of job. Well, in true army fashion, they said, no, you're not going with special forces because they'll keep you. You just have to do it for us without any training, with no skills, <laughs> with no awareness. It was just all of a sudden I was, you know, dubbed the female engagement team chief. So I had to learn myself. Um, I actually had to reach out. Uh, fortunately, I was able to uh, get contacts of special forces, combat support team, female members, other female engagement team members that had worked in Afghanistan. And I just tried to absorb as much information that they could give me. They gave me plenty of resources and outlets. Um, but sometimes, you know, those in the uniform or the, who have done it are the best resources to really understand the job. So it was very ad hoc. Um, it, it was deliberate, but it, I, I think the expectation from my command at this point was that it, I would be just taking a job and like check the block. We have a female engagement team chief. Um, and yet it turned into um, so much more while I was deployed. So while you were the team chief, what exactly were you doing? So I was, um, I was assigned, so our mission was to be uh, advised and assist capacity with several Afghan government official counterparts operating in Zalbu province. So I had a female government counterpart. Um, her name was Sadiqa, and she was the Directorate of Women's Affairs for the province. Um, so she was a government official um, in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, she wasn't getting paid uh, because she was a female. Um, she operated a women's center that had no power, no electricity, no heat, um, no water, and it was really falling uh, apart um, because units that had been there before my unit um, had not provided enduring support, which means, you know, they provided generators and yet there was no money to get gas to run these generators. There was no mechanics to you know, work on the generators when they didn't work. They provided vehicles, but yet nobody knew how to drive. <laughs> and, so, and so it was that, how do I support uh, this female government official and the women's center and the women's that she support, right, at the center? Um, that is enduring and something that will continue after we left. So one part of my mission was to really, and this was something that I, I chose to do. This wasn't a task that I received. This was me leaning forward and saying, if I'm gonna help this woman, I need to help the facility that she's running. So I contacted a nonprofit organization um, out of California called Spirit of America. Um, I think they're still in operation and pretty much provided all the information on Sadiqa's work and uh, the issues why we needed money and support. Um, they ended up getting like $20,000 to provide support. With that $20,000, instead of throwing more generators at the solution, we put in solar panels um, on the, the roof. We built a greenhouse um, with an irrigation system and, and wells that they would have consistent supply of water for the crops that were grown there. And then the solar powers, you know, would be able to um, uh, provide the electricity and the heat that they, they needed. Uh, we had an engineer unit that was uh, attached to uh, my command, um, but the engineer unit was there solely to start tearing down facilities because this was the time in Afghanistan when the army was retrograding out, you know, everything was downsizing. And so their specific mission was to kind of tear down. 
Um, I convinced my command that they should have another mission that was more important, which was to build and to assist the Afghan people. Um, and having done my homework and had a credible, you know, um, uh, recommendation, my commander saw the value in that. And so that, engage, that engineer team went in and helped with the electrical pipes. They actually worked with Afghan engineers in the army. So it was actually an advise and assist that they were, you know, directly supporting Afghan engineers. And that wasn't part of the mission either. So, um, so it was really about looking for opportunities. And I think that's the best way to say it is look for opportunities that maybe are in the scope of your mission, but are not um, explicit tasks. Uh, so, you know, for the young generation of the military coming up, um, take your mission, but look for any gaps uh, where you can uh, find opportunity um, to improve um, yourself and, and those around you. In your work with Sadiqa, um, did you feel that you had the full support of your unit like the whole time you were working with her? or? Um, when I was there, absolutely. Um, but again, I had the full support because I provided opportunities for my command. I mean, everybody likes to look good, right? Mm -hmm. Especially regardless if you're in the military or you're a CEO of a you know, corporation. Um, how do you make your bosses look good? And so when I came up with opportunities, whether it's, you know, to get our engineers to work with the Afghan engineers and advise and assist, um, you know, soliciting a nonprofit organization for money that we did not have as a unit to provide, those are, um, those are opportunities. And so I had to earn that trust in that respect, um, thinking outside the box um, to find those solutions. It was exhausting. It was um, emotionally tedious because... I was so personally invested in trying to support these women in this area because it was a finite time I was going to be there. So every single day mattered. Every single day I decided I want to take you know some time to myself was less time I had to, to help others, which is why we were there. Um, so I, I always had the support of my command, but it didn't come till I actually could prove to them that this was a purposeful mission that they should um, take on. Um, does what you were doing kind of expanding the scope of your mission, is that common in the army? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, so in the, in, in the military, there are things called, um, well, we all, we all get tasks, but there's explicit tasks where, you know, you have to do this specific thing, but, um, there's, and there's specified tasks, but then there's also something called implied tasks. Um, and implied tasks are all the things that you should do that nobody's going to tell you specifically, personally, directly, that you have to come up in this planning process that needs to get done to do this one specific task. From all of those tasks that you kind of um, assess and analyze, there's essential tasks, things that you have to get done. So, um, so in, in the military, in the Army specifically, sometimes those essential tasks are things commands never even thought about. Um, and that's the role of, of an officer and of, of the officer's staff is to really provide those recommendations about implied tasks. So, yeah, so thinking outside of the box and, and developing implied tasks and realizing what is essential to get to that one specific mission um, to accomplish that um, is key uh, to understand that planning process. How do you think we can promote that thinking outside the box? Um, I think the Air Force culture promotes that. Um, 
very well. Uh, I was with the Air Force Command Staff College uh, several years ago um, at Maxwell Air Force Base for a year. Um, I was selected there um, with, as one of 44 officers, Army officers, uh, to work with the Air Force. Um, and I learned that the, the Air Force culture um, really relies on thinking. Um, it, it's an academic service for sure, but it's also um, a type of service where regardless of your rank, um, I, I found that um, thinking outside the box and providing recommendations up and out are highly valuable. Um, and because an airman is an airman through and through regardless of the rank, and that's valued um, in the culture. So I think, I think, um, uh, I think you guys have already had the, the ability to, to do that. Uh, maybe in the academy it's not that attuned because it is a regimented structure to understand discipline and standards, which is also very key to the military. But I think you'll find um, as you come out, you're going to have that foundation um, above your peers when you become lieutenants, and then you'll be able to really start using um, your brain and your critical thinking to start look for solutions. I think it's, I think uh, being able to think outside the box is one skill, but being able to frame whatever idea you have and in a way that your command sees it as opportunities, mm -hmm. I think that's a really cool piece that you brought up, ma'am. Um, being able to have these sort of innovative, innovative ideas, but then you see what the interests are of your command team. You're like, okay, well, how can I frame this in a way that is beneficial to not only me, but their, like the mission in general? Sure, right? I like. I like that a lot. Do you yeah. keep, do you keep in contact with uh, Sadika? So that's what I was gonna ask. So, um, no, I don't keep in touch with Sadika, um, mainly because you know, well, she's no longer a government official, um, but you know, when you have a, a top secret clearance, um, you know, you're always consistently asked, do you have any government counterparts from certain areas. Mm -hmm. So I really had to break ties um, with her, and, and that was difficult. Um, a few years ago when, you know, the army and the military completely left Af Afghanistan and the Taliban took over the country, uh, I actually reached out to Sadiqa and to some other contacts that I had in Afghanistan just to ensure she was safe um, because of her, her job um, really put her, you know, as a target. Um, and the atrocities that occurred um, were just tremendous. So I, I really felt that she, you know, potentially was a threat. Um, didn't hear anything for, for several months, and then finally got an, a strange email from um, an email address I was not familiar with, and they were just 10 words, and it said, you know, she is fine, she's with her daughter, and they moved to Norway, and, and, and I knew she was safe. Um, someday I hope to, to seek, maybe I'll get out of the military and go on a personal quest to try to find her in Norway and, and see how she's doing. I'm sure she's still trying to support her country from afar. Um, she d dedicated her life to service to her country. Um, it's an incredible story. She lost her husband uh, to the Mujahideen very brutally. Um, she witnessed everything, and instead of letting that define her, um, she let that motivate her and, and that agony and peril um, you know, uh, encouraged her internally to really fight for a better cause. Was there anything in the book, I guess since you didn't write it, maybe you don't know, but anything that was initially in the book that was cut? I do not know. Mm, I'm sure 
Um, I'm sure there was a lot that was cut, um, but I don't know specifically. So outside of the scope of the book, uh, what is something that you are passionate about as you know, Major Hip that you don't think that you get to talk about as often as you'd like? Oh, gosh, that's a tough question. Um, what am I passionate about? Um, so Major Joe Hip um, is really passionate about um, mentoring the younger generation. I think that is key. Um, in my command right now uh, as a three-star level command and I don't I have a, a team but they're predominantly civilians and um, there's some senior enlisted um, but I, I'm no longer with you know the privates and the specialists um, and I miss that and I think that that is key in this military um, especially facing the threats that we have you know currently in, in the current mission so um, Major Joe Hip is always looking for opportunities to um, mentor and support uh, the young the young soldiers that are coming up. Um, even if I can't be their assigned leader, I think being a leader, um, whether you're uh, assigned as it or not, is is really important. Um, Joe Hip outside the the uniform is really um, key on just enjoying um, the outdoors um, and continuing to learn. I think learning is so critical um, in the military. I mean, regardless of what profession you are, you always have to keep learning about yourself, about others, about this world. Um, but with everything that is going on in this world, with everything that is going on in this country, um, and there's so much information right now on social media, um, I really think it's important for us to be aware of, of changes that are occurring in this country. So the personal Joe Hip um, would advocate that, you know, know what's going on in Ohio, know what's going on with policies um, in certain states in this country. You know, I have a lot of questions the past couple of days about diversity and cultural norms um, in other countries. And I just challenge that um, as military members serving this country, we also make sure that we're aware of what's going on um, inside our own borders as well. I think that's really important, man. Absolutely. Um, kind of along the same line, how do you maintain your sense of purpose and commitment to service, even in the face of adversity? So, fortunately, um, I am third generation military, so I have my own personal network. Um, my, my parents, uh, you know, my grandfather's passed, but um, I have several uncles, several cousins, you know, and I'm not talking just Army and Air Force, but Navy and, and Marines. And so my purpose and motivation really comes through my family lineage. Um, that is not the case for others. I, I love hearing stories about cadets um, whom I've met the past couple days who were first generation, and they saw an opportunity um, and the benefits of joining this military. And it's so courageous because, um, you know, I, I, not to belittle the threats that I face coming up in the ranks, but, you know, there were very localized, you know, threats of Al-Qaeda, ISIL, and the Taliban. Now we're facing China, Russia, and, and Iran. And so um, I just really, you know, kudos to all of you who are listening, who are, who are the first generation and military and your family has no idea what you're doing or why you did this, um, I highly encourage you to find a mentor. Um, it doesn't have to be a senior, you know, airman or woman. It can be, you know, a fellow cadet. 
Um, but just make sure you have a battle buddy. In the Army, we call it a battle buddy. And it's not just about protecting, you know, your six in combat. A battle buddy is someone that you can talk to comfortably, trust them. Um, you can say whatever's on your mind and know that you're getting it out and you're, you're having that ability to say, this is what I think. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I think I should do. What do you think? Um, I relied on my family to do that. Um, for, for those that don't have military in their family, find someone that you can trust to do the same. All right, ma'am. Could you end us off with a war story? <laughs> a war story. Uh, let's see here. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you a war story. Um, and this isn't meant to be, you know, a female in combat. It's going to sound like it, but it's really about um, being uh, in a situation where you are physically, mentally, and emotionally um, pushing yourself to the limits. Uh, so when I was deployed in Afghanistan as the female engagement team chief, one of the things I did was that accompany my brigade commander on all his convoys. And, um, and this was, it was a, a political statement to his Afghan counterparts that he was meeting with. It was showing that, hey, I have females on my team, which the army was still struggling with, right? But my commander would say, I have my female right here and she is in full battle rattle and she's got her weapon and she's keeping me safe and she's on my security team. You know, Afghan army, you need to start training females because um, in that culture, uh, males don't talk to females, only females talk to females. So for, for, to ensure security and safety, um, we needed more female police, more female in the Afghan army to assist. So, um, so on this one specific mission, it had nothing to do with being a female engagement team chief. Um, I was considered, you know, a, the female on this mission specifically to be a symbol uh, to the Afghan uh, counterparts my commander was working with. And I was fine with it. Um, but it was a very taxing mission. Uh, we were landing in a very remote district in the province, way up north. So there was tons of mountains, but it was a very, very dry uh, desert climate. Um, and this was in the middle of summer, and so it was like 110 degrees outside. Um, and the, the Chinook landed in a known um, HLZ um, with, you know, we were expecting indirect fire from the mountain ranges about it. So we had to get off uh, that bird immediately and, like, you know, move move to cover. Um, and so, you know, I, I had never done anything like that before. Um, so there was that consistent threat. Then we had to walk three miles uh, through the desert. And when it's 110 degrees and you've got all your gear and you're carrying all your water, plus you're including you know, and carrying gear that we were dropping off at the Alf, at this Afghan outpost. Um, there was a soldier who, who passed out um, during this um, uh, march uh, to the outpost. And, uh, you know, we all had taken knee and drink water, and I just knew I was not going to be another soldier who would um, show weakness, right? whether it was emotionally or physically, I had to really dig deep down um, and find that strength to keep going. And it, it was a struggle. It was very, very taxing. Um, that same mission, uh, when we were coming back, we found out that there was a green on blue attack at the FOB. And so, um, and that there were threats on soldiers. And so knowing that uh, there was an insider threat um, 
we actually had to leave early and ruck march in a different direction, several different miles, so that the Chinook could land in a different area um, because we were worried about indirect fire and, and attack. Um, and then it was an hour flight to get back to the FOB. That whole time, I had no idea. Was it someone that I knew? Was it somebody I worked with? Like, we didn't know who had been killed. We didn't know how many had been killed, why there was an attack on the FOB. Um, we just knew that there was a security threat. Um, so we finally got back um, to the FOB, and everybody was exhausted. And then, you know, it was all-night security shifts, pulling security. Um, unfortunately, two Afghan soldiers that were assigned to the FOB um, did kill two other soldiers who were acting as security who were their counterparts um so that was one of the most defining days of my deployment one because i had to dig deep and find myself you know all that strength and courage to, to keep going um and then the other side it was how do you continue to trust those that you're supposed to be helping and um know that you know, you're also potentially a target for them too. So it was a really, it was a really difficult, difficult time for my command um, uh, not to become jaded or disingenuous, um, but to really continue that support uh, with the Afghan army. So that would be my war story. <laughs> yes, ma'am. A great one to end us off on. Great. So there you have it, Major Hit. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Best wishes to you all.